0: Good to be with you. Open up to uh, Revelation chapter two as we continue on through this section. Uh, we're, we're, we're going through the, uh, uh, the the letters that Jesus writes through John at the beginning of the book of Revelation to the churches. We were saying last week. And I'll reiterate how handy it is, how very, um, uh, uh, I guess, opportunistic it is for at this time, uh, you know, early on in a church's life, to be able to start out, not with polling everybody and saying, what would you like to see in a church? What do you think would be the best thing for a church to do? What do you hate seeing in other churches? How do you want church to look? But rather going to Jesus' own words in a real-life situation to real-life churches and saying, what does Jesus demand churches to do and be and look like, and how does he demand us to um, manifest our obedience in life so this is a very very important uh, sort of study to do as we ask the question what does Jesus think about the states of the seven churches that he's writing to so a reminder is that these these seven churches are actual historical churches that he's writing to they are all in sort of a a similar area that is modern-day Turkey around the Mediterranean and each of them are in different situations each of them are in um, get a different degree of rebuke and uh, chastisement and, and judgment. And, uh, uh blessing and encouragement so there's there's one church that receives no encouragement there's two churches that receive no rebuke there's two churches that receive a bit of a mix and they have similar sins and it actually the way it's laid out in this order is actually ends up being a bit of a sandwich it's pretty much a mirror image of each other the first three then the fourth and then the last three but anyway that's just sort of how revelation often works in these these cycle ways of of reading but we're now going to read chapter 2 and then verse 8 Through to verse 11. A short epistle to the church that is undergoing an amazing, an intense amount of persecution at the time that it received this letter. And it was uh, to the church of Smyrna. So Jesus says to the Apostle John in verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. For behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. May God bless the reading of his word in our midst this season. Amen. I love that while Jesus is speaking, Jesus himself sums up each letter by saying, you who have ears to hear, That is the spiritually alive people, who aren't uh, just physically alive, but spiritually dead, that's, that's one of the ways that the Bible talks about people in our natural state. You're never born a Christian, you're not born saved, you're born spiritually dead. Physically alive, spiritually dead. And one of the ways that the Bible pictures or tells an imagery of us coming to spiritual life is that we, we receive a new heart. It uses sort of organ language. We receive a new heart or we receive new eyes which were once blind or or that now we have ears that can hear the voice of God. And so he finishes each of the, each of the letters saying, I'm speaking, but it's the spirit that is speaking. Because while Jesus speaks, he speaks in his word and the spirit wrote the Bible and then speaks through the word as we read it. So at this time, just like chapter 1 told us, even though it's a book that we're reading, really, it's the Father speaking through the Son by the Holy Spirit. We have the triune God now speaking to us. It it may feel like sometimes we're just gathering together, having a bit of fun, sing some songs, do a little Bible study, and hang out afterwards. That can can be a rut that we fall into of thinking of church as but it's not. We spent some time uh, in previous weeks realising, look at how much emphasis Jesus puts on local gatherings of churches. Some of them would have been only a few dozen people. Some of them would have been small house churches. Others were huge, thriving, mega churches. But wherever people gather in the name of Jesus, in his spirit, under his word, there Jesus is among them and he is with us today, blessing us, sanctifying us, encouraging us. Let's take encouragement in that. To here the Spirit is speaking, Jesus is speaking, John is writing, and we have three short verses. It's easy to read this and then think that this letter is all about Smyrna the church, but when you read it again and again, like I was forced to do in study, and loved doing it, wasn't a forceful activity, but in study, you realise this is not about Smyrna at all. This letter hardly mentions Smyrna. You know who it's about? It's about Jesus. From first line to last line, it is Jesus, 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 and that is what the church needs. The church doesn't need a, a book all about you. The Bible is not all about you and all, you know your 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 achievements and how great you are. The Bible is for you, but it is all about Jesus. And that's what that's what Smyrna realized. In their letter, they just got a letter about Jesus, and it was exactly what they needed. So we're going to see multiple points here uh, that are really just all about Jesus. So first of all, we're going to see that Jesus is the sovereign God. So look at verse eight. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last. Each time that Jesus addresses the churches, he he introduces himself with a very in, in, uh, intentional name. So today he's introducing himself as the first and the last. It's a very intentional name that is specifically relevant to the church that he's writing to. The language of being the first and the last um, is a language of sovereignty it's a reality that he is god Uh, this language is used in the old testament of in isaiah 41 verse 4 in isaiah 48 verse 12 and in each of those cases his god is speaking of himself as yahweh the eternal god that never had a beginning therefore he is the first that will never have an end because he has life and eternality and infinity in himself therefore he is the last the first and the last that's what yahweh called himself Again, in verse uh, 6 of Isaiah chapter 44, God says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now, this is a very provocative and encouraging way to introduce yourself, if you're Jesus, to the church of Smyrna. Now, we're going to see soon, because Caesar claimed, especially in this area, had a real stronghold of teaching that he was the first and only. He was a god. That there are other gods beside the Christian god, and one of them is the Caesar, and all of the other Roman gods. So while Smyrna is in this city that is just surrounded by pagan worship, worshipping false gods, sometimes they want to throw Jesus on the end and worship the gods beside them. Here's Jesus saying, I am the only god. There is no other God beside me. There is no other Savior. There is no other Redeemer. There is no other Creator. I am the only God. But one of the big emphases that is coming through here is the fact that He is sovereign. So in the the Old Testament, often when God was, was telling His people, I'm the first, I'm the last. There's no other God beside me. Part of that was a measure of encouragement as if He's telling the people, I don't know who you're afraid of. You think there's going to be another God out here that can out-wrestle me? That can take you out of my hand? You think there's going to be an older brother of mine that's going to come along and ruin my plans? There's no other God. You can trust me. No matter what I lead you to, I'm going to get you through it. And so the divinity of Christ and the sovereignty of Christ is an immediate encouragement to this church that is going through massive persecution. So that's the first point. Jesus himself, he's not just speaking about the Father. But himself, personally, Jesus is God. He is divine. He is the sovereign. He is in total control of Smyrna's church suffering. That's what to see. Now, secondly, look at the rest of verse 8. Jesus says, I am the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus is not just the eternal God who is sovereign. He is also resurrected. To the church whose members are currently, like in Smyrna, people who are currently being killed. This is one of the things that is going to be a constant theme for like a, a hundred years at least in the church of Smyrna. Is that they are going to be having pastors, overseers, deacons and church members constantly killed because they would not bow to the Roman gods and to Caesar. And so it's to those people who are dying that Jesus is saying, yep, me too, before you had it done to you. They killed me as well. I know what dying for obedience to God looks like and feels like I died. And yet, I came to life like you were. Don't be afraid of death, in other words, is what he's saying. He's identifying himself to them in a very intentional way. I'm the one who died and I came to life. Remember in chapter 1, verse 17 to 18, when, when John sees Jesus in his vision, he gets extremely afraid, crumples down to the ground like he's in a coma. And Jesus says... Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and to Hades. So the first point that is really sort of being communicated by that is the fact that the resurrection of Jesus after his death guarantees that all of us have resurrection after our death. In other words, hey church who keeps on dying, keep on getting new pastors because all the heads keep getting chopped off, to you guys, there is life after death. I give it to you because I, I, I inhabit that life after death. I am that resurrection. That's part of what he's saying. The other part is that he, he wishes his saints to be with him. And since that is a fact, since Jesus wants us to be with him and is identifying with us, we therefore have immunity over Hades or over hell and we can be instantly with him upon our death. So, so that's two sections. When we die, we go and we're with him, but also in the future, we'll have a resurrection like him when we get our full bodies back in a glorified, eternal body. That's two things that is being promised by, by him just introducing himself. I was dead, and now I'm alive. <clears throat> but if you're thinking carefully about that, if you read that, and you're not just thinking your christian mindset of just skimming through the Bible, but you read that carefully, you realize that that is, it sounds like a contradiction, It sounds ridiculous, and this is what we call a glorious mystery, a wondrous mystery. We just said that Jesus is at the same time the eternal, immortal, infinite, unkillable God that has always existed and can never be taken out of existence, from whom all things come, and yet he died, and now he's alive again. How in the world can we wrap our minds around the fact that the eternal, immortal, infinite God died? The mystery is solved in what we call the gospel. In other words, two things, the incarnation and the atonement. In the incarnation, God, the Son, took on into this creation. He loved this creation, so he bound himself to this creation by bringing onto himself a body, a human nature, to be like us, yet without sin. So that then he can go to uh, to the cross, and receive the sin of the world onto his shoulders, die for us, and be resurrected again, now the eternal God, who cannot die, has taken onto himself a nature that can die, and then he died in that nature so as to rise again to an immortal human nature. Now forevermore we have in God's presence Jesus Christ himself, who is God, who is eternally immortal, yet human. He is our saviour, he's our redeemer. This, this wonderful mystery is what we sing about, love, and we'll spend eternity singing about. It's the glorious mystery of Jesus dying for us. So that's just his introduction. Wait, now we've finished verse 8. That's just him telling them things about himself in a very specific way that is encouraging to them. Now go to verse 9. We're going to see thirdly, <coughs> Jesus knows intimately the suffering of his church. Jesus says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are in fact a synagogue of Satan. This language of tribulation really just means a, a, a period of intense persecution. That's, that's what Smyrna is going to undergo, and that's usually what the Bible means when it uses that language of persecution. A, a, a period of time that is particularly intense where there is a lot of suffering. And now in Smyrna we see that Jesus is saying there's an intense trial coming, you're gonna have persecution, oh, sorry, you're currently in persecution, and that that was affecting their income and their economical status. So, so now he's saying, and I know you're poverty. So remember, in a, in a world where there's not Medicare, and there's not uh, the doll that we can rely on we say, you know, my, my, my boss fired me because of my Christian beliefs, so or they found out that I worship Jesus, they cut me off, uh, that's okay, I can apply for you know, uh, uh, the doll, I'll, I'll get a fair wage anyway. That's not how it worked in the ancient world. Uh, we praise God for common graces. That's not what they had. You, you get cut off from a lot of economical um, uh, uh, influence or, or uh, uh, partaking in the ancient world. You can't get food. You can't buy money. You get kicked out of your house. You get ostracized from society. People don't let you buy from them. And so the church is in a very very uh, impoverished state. They don't have much money. They don't have much goods going for them. They're not big and powerful. They don't have heaps of, of worldly influence or power in that way. And yet, Jesus is speaking to them and saying, You are really rich. In the ESV, it's in brackets. That say, I know your tribulation, Jesus says. I know your poverty, but you are rich. A little reminder before he even moves on. Just in as much as you're suffering with poverty, in as much as you can't afford food, in as much as your children are struggling, remember, just think objectively about it for the moment. You are the richest people in the empire. Caesar knows nothing. The kings, the the governors, they know nothing about the rewards that you have coming and about the riches that you have in Christ. They fill their life with gold and parties and food and girls and whatnot because they don't have what you have, which is true satisfaction in Christ, true, true peace with God, and true peace to be able to walk into the grave and wake up again. They don't have that, but you are genuinely rich. So he knows that they are in tribulation. He knows that they are in poverty. He's communicating to them that he cares. And he also knows the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So a synagogue was basically the Jewish version of church. That's, that, that's when they would collect Jewish men together and their families. They would sing their hymns. They would cut each other's hairs with the curly bits. I don't know what else they did. You know, they read their scripture. They read the traditional uh, teaching of the rabbis. They did all their stuff. And then they would go to the temple for special holidays. But the synagogues were all over the place, like little local churches. What Jesus himself, just note how how significant this is. What Jesus is saying is that if there are Jews out there who call themselves Jews, he says, the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, they are a synagogue of Satan. If you're a Jew today, like an ethnic Jew, a true Israelite, and you know the Old Testament, they go to synagogue and whatever, but they reject the king that was given to them and they are happy with the fact that he was murdered and they persecute the church, Jesus calls them a church of Satan. He says, they do not belong to me if they keep abusing my bride, the church. They do not belong to me if they're amending the fact that I was crucified. They don't belong to me. They they have all the pride that that is attached to being one of the historical Jews, but they have in fact rejected all the blessings and now attack me. They are not true Jews. And in Smyrna, there was a very heavy Jewish uh, and very involved Jewish population. And what we can see is that a lot of the persecution was coming from them. We see this all throughout the book of Acts and uh, even, of course, in, in Jesus' ministry, that it was the Jews who a lot of the pushback, against the kingdom of God and against the free grace of the gospel was coming. We also see that brought up in Galatians. We even see a little bit of in the book of Corinthians and, um, and other places, and Romans included. Um, uh, uh, and so one of the questions become, how were the Jews persecuting the church? Were they riding into the church's gatherings and whipping people and beating them up and taking them outside and killing them? No. The verse says in verse 9, the slander of those who say they are Jews are not. It's not that the Jews themselves were laying hands on the Christians, it's actually what what we see happen multiple times through the book of Acts, this is also hinted at later on in the book of Revelation, uh, is that the Jews would utilize the power of Rome and throw the Christians under the bus. So the Jews had this this ability to to drag the Christians before the courts or before the Romans, before the politicians and the police officers and say, these guys are Christians, they reject Caesar's authority, and they would make up lies about them. They want to overthrow the kingdom, they don't want to pay taxes, they're going to set the whole city in uproar, they would slander the Christians by saying things that are not true, make them look bad, so that then the Romans would punish them and put them in prison. So it was sort of the, the Jews puppeting the Romans, and the Romans utilizing the information coming from the Jews. In Revelation later on, what we see this pictured as is a harlot, A whore on the back of a dragon. And she is the liar. She is the slanderer. She is the Jewish uh, 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 people people who are persecuting the church. But her power is really coming from the beast, the dragon, which symbolizes Rome itself. That's how the Jews were persecuting the church. And so Jesus is saying, in Smyrna, I know what's going on. I know you're being slandered. I know that it's terrible. But know that while I identify with you, you're one of my people. Those guys belong to their father, the devil. And right now it's not ultimately Jew versus Christian. It's ultimately Satan versus Jesus. Now who are you gonna back in that fight? You're gonna lose all of your ends if you back the devil against King Jesus riding on a white horse, slaying the great dragon. So here's Jesus. I know what you're going through, I understand. This is how you know he can see how the Jews were persecuting the people. Um, and one of the other sort of historical things that are coming behind this is we've gone, okay, now we understand how the Jews were persecuting the church. But the Romans had a very specific way of kind of weeding out the true Christians. The, the, and in fact, all other people who didn't want to worship the Roman gods. In Smyrna, now Smyrna was very, um, uh, very uh, loyal to Rome. It was not literally in, in Rome. It was sort of, you know, like we said, it was out of Asia minor. It was very loyal to the Roman Empire. They didn't want to revolt. They didn't want to throw off the Roman Empire. They loved Caesar. In fact, they built in their city more than one temple to the Caesar. So that as the Caesars would change and move on, they would would put in new names or new statues, whatever it would be, and they would worship, not just the Roman gods, like Roma and stuff, but they would actually worship the Caesar himself. Smyrna was very, very loyal. And so one of the things that would happen is at certain times times of the year, All of the the members of uh, of the of the Smyrna populace were brought before the 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 incense and you were required. It's sort of their their June Pride Month type thing where all employees have to wear like a badge, except on steroids, it's much worse. They all have to come before the altar, take a little pinch of the incense, throw it in the fire, and just confess, Caesar is Lord. Kaiser hochurios. That's what they had to say. Caesar is the ultimate lord. They were allowed to worship their other gods, but they also had to worship Caesar. And this is how the Romans would, um, would persecute because the Jews had sort of politically got themselves immunity from that. They fought enough wars against the Romans for this to sort of win their freedom. They didn't have to bend down, but the Christians did not have that freedom of religion. And so they would tell the, tell the Romans who the Christians were. The Romans would drag certain individuals before the fire. And if they would not, this is where Romans 10 comes in. Remember in Romans 10 when Paul says to the Romans, if you confess with your mouth, not just your heart, don't just think it, but you say out loud when you're dragged before the altar, Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. He doesn't mean a little internal belief as you're sitting over in the corner, you just have to say to yourself, Jesus is Lord. He's talking about in the heat of the fire, as you're dragged before them, you continue to hold that confession, Jesus is Lord, then you are one who is saved. And so this is the, 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 the fighting paradigms and mindsets of the Romans and the Christians. Well, these Smyrns who used to worship the Roman gods, used to love worshiping Caesar and all that involved, because it would involve some pretty disgusting acts of worship, if we'll leave it there. Lots of clothes being thrown away in those temples. That's what would happen. They loved engaging in all of that. When they became Christian, they left it behind. And then they became those with the targets on their back from the Romans. So the Jews were slandering the Christians to the Romans. The Romans were then making the Christians either worship or oftentimes be killed, if not killed and driven to severe persecution. So here Jesus says to them, I know your tribulation. I know what you are going through. But look next in verse 10, we realize that Jesus doesn't just know about it. He's in fact directly sovereign over their suffering, their persecution. So he doesn't just say that he knows about it, but look in verse 10, he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Not only does he know it, Jesus is actually saying, I don't just have great vision to what's currently happening, I know what's about to happen, and I'm not going to stop it. Like, you'd think if if you're in Smyrna and Jesus says, I know what's about to happen to you, you'd say, okay, you're going to stop it, right? Like, that's that's the whole point of being omnipotent and knowing the future is that you're going to stop what's about to happen to us. That's not what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus is not responding to the devil's playbook. Jesus is writing the future. Look at what he says in verse 10. He doesn't just say, uh, look at uh, halfway through, he says, behold the devil. He doesn't just say the devil is going to do this you know, but, but, I'll, but I'll rescue you at the last moment. He doesn't say that. He says, in fact, the devil is serving Jesus' own purposes. He says, behold, the devil is about to throw you into prison so that you may be tested. Now, is it, is it the devil's will to test Christians and, as James say, through testing, produce stronger faith and endurance and character? Is that the devil's plan in your life, to increase your Christian character and perseverance? Not at all. The devil doesn't tribulate us, doesn't persecute us, or make us suffer in order to test, and to try, and to train us. Only Jesus does that. So Jesus is actually saying, the devil is going to come and do something to you for my purpose. The devil is on my leash. I'm going to let him go at you. It's going to help you. You're going to produce character through this tribulation, but what else does he say? He says, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now this. Probably isn't literally 10 days. It might be. Lots of numbers in the book of Revelation are pretty symbolic. Maybe it's 10 days that they are going to be arrested over. And then, I mean, in in days like this, you weren't put in prison as a punishment. You were put in prison until you died. Like, until you got your head chopped off. So maybe a lot of them for 10 days are going to be persecuted, arrested, put in prison. And then they're they're done. They're going to die. Maybe that's happening. Maybe it's just a, a symbolic number. But the point is this. Jesus knows how long it's going to last. Jesus is not flipping through his playbook, hoping that he can figure out Satan's next move. He's telling the church, you're about to go through something, but I'm not going to leave you. I know what's going to happen. I'm planning it all because of my purpose. So yes, Satan is persecuting through his people, the Jews and the Romans. But Jesus is ultimately in charge of it all. So we, we just reject wholesale the idea that Christian blessing means that we're always going to have health and wealth and prosperity. We see in the Apostles' example and in their writings that Christians ought to expect hardship and tribulation and persecution. In fact, because Smyrna doesn't get any rebukes from Jesus, they're probably getting persecuted because of how obedient they're being. That's hashtag blessed. They're getting blessed from persecution because of their obedience. That's how we need to be thinking about this. Jesus' radical call of obedience then comes to them, which receives blessings. He's going to tell them something radical, give them a command, and then that is what is going to receive great blessings. Look at the next part of verse 10. Uh, He says, The devil is going to throw you in prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. He doesn't say, Be successful. He doesn't say, be healthy, be chipper and happy, be prosperous, be healed, be the healer. He doesn't say be any of those things. He says be faithful. Faithfulness is in our hands. Faithfulness is what we're called to. Faithfulness means believing what we have been taught, holding on to that belief no matter what comes. So that through the waves of persecution, the waves of trial, like we've just sung, though Satan buffets and attacks us, though trials and waves slam at our ship, we continue to go forward and hold fast to the good confession, which is that Jesus is Lord. He died, and upon him was laid my sins, and he rose again. I will never stop believing and outwardly confessing and speaking that truth. That's what faithfulness means. Be faithful unto Death. Remain steadfast. Don't run. Don't become cowards when they threaten you. Stay on the front line. Don't reject your faith in Christ. This is is the kind of allegiance that only Jesus can demand. He told them, be faithful. You're going to die. I'm worth dying for. A church leader can't say that. Your boss can't say that. Only Jesus has the authority and the value to be able to say to you, I own your life. Die for me. There's a... uh, Uh, a gentleman who becomes a pastor in the church of Smyrna in the next couple of decades after this book was written, and his name was Polycarp. He was one of the very close friends and disciples of the Apostle John. He was in his 80s when the Roman uh, Caesar was really biting down on Christianity and trying to destroy them, and they knew that if you get the leaders, uh, well, they thought that if you get the leaders, you'll take out most of the church. They didn't realize that when you kill the leaders, more rise up with great inspiration. Nonetheless, they had uh, set out uh, to find Polycarp because he was such a powerful preacher, motivating people, saving people through his ministry. So the Roman Empire had sort of set out a headhunting for Polycarp. And his disciples had sort of taken him out into the villas and taken him out into the countryside to run away. But there was a night that he was struggling to sleep. And as he dozed off, he had a dream that his pillow was on fire and it engulfed him. And as he woke up, a young man ran into his room and he told him don't bother telling me that they're coming for me they're going to burn me at the stake I believe God is sending me there within a couple of hours the Romans came found him at the villa because they persecuted tortured and gotten out of a young lady where he was hiding she went to heaven but Holy was found and the soldiers come up to the villa and knock on the door and he, he had the door opened he welcomed them in and said, Please give me some time to pray. We're gonna have a lovely dinner. We've set up a meal for you. All the soldiers were given given a hospitable meal while he prayed, and then he came down with them, said a blessing over them, and the soldiers were simply pleading with him. This doesn't have to go this way. You're such a nice man. We see we see the love of the gods in you. Won't you just tell Caesar that he's Lord? Just just off it's a tiny pinch, you know? It's just a little pinch, throw it into the fire. You don't even have to mean it. Just say that Caesar is Lord. And he told them, I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to go faithfully to my death. So they took him and they traveled with him. And they, he told disciples not to fight for him, not to try and uh, like take him away. But, but he was taken into the great theater where he was going to be executed. And he was compelled again by the emperor Polycarp, you're done. No more running, no more hiding. This is the moment. This is fine. No one's going to judge you. Just say that I am Lord. Just give up your whole confession to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a pastor who, no doubt, would have preached Revelation chapter 2 to his own people multiple, multiple times. And he lived it out. He said, as he was facing the Caesar, he said, Eighty and six years I have served Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. As they came to tie him down, he told them, you don't need to tie me to the stake. I'm not going to run away. Courage will hold me here. And so they didn't tie him up as they usually have to do. They lit the flames beneath him. And as he burned, he cried out, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs, I may share the cup of Christ. That is being faithful unto death. Polycarp lived that out. But he's able to do that. And Jesus' encouragement for the Christians to do that is on the basis of the fact that Jesus is sovereign over death. So look at the last part of verse 10 and verse 11. It says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches to the one who conquers, will not be hurt by the second death. Smyrna was being called, cast off all of your fear. Do not care, because as we've already seen, Jesus is the sovereign. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus is sovereign over your persecution. And Jesus is sovereign over death. Back in verse 8, we've already read, that Jesus said, I am the first and the last, I was dead and I'm alive, and now we see him saying, you don't give up in the face of death, for you will be alive after you die. He's encouraging them to follow him into exactly the same inheritance. To the one who conquers, he says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation talks of the first death, which is our physical death, when this life expires because of our sin against God. We all have a limited amount of time on earth. Every day that we live, every breath that we take is mercy. God doesn't owe us a single second. And at some point, he takes the life that he has graciously allowed to continue to sinners like us. At some point, we die. That's the first death, which is part of our punishment for sin. But the book of Revelation also talks about the second death, which is when we are thrown into the eternal hell with bodies fit for that punishment. So that, so that our bodies do not get eaten up by the fire, but persevere for eternity in the fire. This is the most dreadful, horrible, soul-trembling, terrifying doctrines of the Bible. The wrath of God with no grace, with no mercy, that never ends, for sinners. And the only reason that people go there, that anyone in this room or anybody that hears the preaching of this church, whether it's evangelism, sharing the gospel in your workplace, listening to the sermons, being here, the only reason anybody that hears the gospel will go to that hell is because they've refused, because you have refused to bend your knee, turn away from your sin, and believe that Jesus alone is able to save It's the only reason anybody will go to hell if you've heard the gospel, because you've refused the grace of God. But the second death is entirely escapable. The, the first death is not. Unless you're alive when Jesus comes back. The first death is not escapable. We all go through it. But, but Jesus is speaking to those who conquer. The, the, the very thing that Polycarp knew. Polycarp was saying, You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and then after a little while is extinguished. Now that's the first death. But you were ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. That's the second death. Now that second death, though many Christians will go through the fire like Polycarp did, many Christians were fed to the dogs and the wild animals and thrown before the gladiators or thrown off ships or drowned or crucified or, or whatever, but we escape the second death because Jesus himself died for us, both a first death, a physical death, but in that act he was also dying our second death. He was dying for us, the eternal wrath of God in our place. And therefore Jesus was alive, and then he was killed for us, in our place, and now is alive forevermore. So that anyone now who conquers does not taste, is not touched by the second death. Hell is entirely avoided. There's not a single person, no matter how sinful you've been this week, no matter how how crappy of a version you think your Christian life is, there is not a single Christian has ever called on Jesus' name for His grace that He has turned away and will leave behind in rejection for the second death to consume? Not a single one. Do we all have ways that we need to grow in this Smyrna encouragement of of walking into more boldness, more courage, more less cowardice, and more zeal? Absolutely. Do so many of us need to to uh, to make sure that our Christian life is much more than a Sunday meeting? Of course we do. I'm sure that there's people right now who would read this kind of thing and, and wish and hope that when you were being put before the flames, you would have that kind of courage. Like a, like a cross your heart and hope to die kind of thing. I hope I would have enough in me to die for Christ. Or we kind of romanticize that idea and go, dying for Christ would be awesome. I'm going to hang out on that. But that is not what Jesus calls us to. He is the one who chooses whether we die for Christ. But he commands every single one of us to live for Christ. Every day you know whether or not you would have the courage to die for Christ. And the answer is simply in the question, are you currently conquering over your temptation now? Are you currently whimpering and walking backwards in fear because your workmates look at you strangely? Because you get a mean comment on social media? Because a family member doesn't appreciate the way you're saying that Jesus is the only way to salvation? If you're backing away from that, if you're failing to bring the obedience of Christ into all of your life, then yeah... Dying for Christ seems like wishful thinking. But for those who conquer, and that's what Jesus is saying to the Smyrnians, to those who conquer, which means to overcome, to be victorious over your temptation, over the persecution, over the devil, in fact. That's what Revelation later on will give the picture of. Those who don't give in to persecution are pictured as conquering the dragon himself. To us, we are promised cannot be touched by the second death so again let's ask the question what do we overcome what do we conquer what are we victorious over well in Revelation 5 Jesus is shown as the conqueror and yet as he, John looks at him he sees he's a conqueror and yet he's a bloodied lamb that was sacrificed conquering does not mean staying alive forever conquering means being so obedient to God, holding on to the faith that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ death and resurrection that we are never turned from it, no matter what comes. That's what conquering means. And John, the same writer as Revelation, will say in 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, he says, I'm writing to you because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have conquered the evil one. 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God Conquers the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Holding on to our faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of the persecution, is what conquering means. Infusing our life with obedience, despite the cost, is what conquering means. So we may die, and yet we live. Probably most of us are not going to be facing the reality of being put to death for our faith. But how about willing to be embarrassed? Let's at least start there. Willing to be put down and disreputed or slandered like the Smyrnians were were, were having done to them. Are you willing to have your your reputation, your life, your way of life, your lifestyle, your, your name butchered? Give that up for the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how we conquer. For unbelievers, as we wrap up, this means that you are, in this moment, at risk of the second death. Not only is death coming, you will die at a point that none of us know, but also after that death, Jesus will put you into the second death, the lake of fire, the eternal hell. Because your sins have been committed against an infinite God, and so the punishment that you will pay back to him will also be infinite and eternal. This is the the reality of your sin. It is so offensive against God that he will not let it go unpunished. He will punish it for eternity as you deserve. And you are laid wide open and totally vulnerable to the second death. Jesus' call is to become like the people he is speaking to. To become one who, who turns away from your sin. who who does not bend the knee to whatever the world, and whatever the devil, and whatever you want to be true, but you believe the facts that God says to us, that you're a sinner, that he alone is God, that Jesus is your only salvation, that he died and rose again, that you may be saved. And as soon as you believe that, you are freed from the second death. You are given eternal life and a crown of life when you die. That's the gospel promise. So let's pray as we wrap up. Father God, we thank you for this, this time in your word. We thank you that the the reason it's so encouraging, sanctifying, growing for us is not because we are of significance, not because we have great spiritual might, or because we're huge in number or massive in finances, like like the Smyrnians. Lord, we just we just come as people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to us, God has written. The Spirit speaks, and Jesus wants to tell us very important things. Pray, Lord God, that this very moment. Those of us who have things to repent of, sins to confess and walk away from, maybe the sins of cowardice, the the sin of being afraid of what people think, the fear of man, the fear of of what might happen to us in this life if we are obedient to you, the sin of disobedience because we, we consider your commands optional, the sin of fragmenting our life into some things we give unto the Lordship of Jesus and other things that we entirely rule ourselves Lord, in all those matters, I pray that you would put on our hearts things to confess to you and to pray to you for repentance and forgiveness. And I pray, Lord God, for everyone who is willing to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, that you would give to us a heart of repentance, and you would give to us a faith that overcomes, that conquers, that that outlasts and perseveres and stands fast despite all of the pressures that we might find in this life. The pressures of our own sin and temptation, the pressure of persecution, and the pressure of of suffering that you send into our life. Lord God, would you hold us fast? Would you keep us faithful to the end? For it is in your name that we trust and rely, and in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.